Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast, even though the theme song might still be growing on you. It'll never be like the original, but hey, copyrights. Anyhow, we have a special episode tonight coming back for its fifth appearance Bringing a new record to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Nay, mind you, maintaining the existing record. Because I think he held the record at four repeat appearances on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Not only that, but he goes back to the original format version. But before we introduce him, we cannot forget the other part, the other half of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. The guys you are actually tuning in for our friends Jeff Copsetta and Mr. Henry Sledge. Gentlemen, how are you all doing tonight? Just fine. Good. Doing good. And as I was saying before, here to defend his title, probably with a little more enthusiasm than my co-host, Mr. Jared Frederick. Jared, how are you going, sir? Back for your fifth appearance on the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Let's bring the enthusiasm. Show the boys how it's done. I'm pleased to be here. It's near the end of the semester. I'm just back from the Pacific, and I'm in good company. And that is why you're here, because we saw the photos. We're extremely jealous, to be quite honest with you. And um, we're interested on how that came to be, what your uh, opinions were, what you saw, and just the full rundown. Um, but I think what we're going to do before we do that, because we don't want to put a screech and stop in the middle of that conversation. So let's just go ahead and get the plugs out of the way, get the mail call out of the way and all that good stuff. So first and foremost, we want to thank everybody who has signed up for Patreon to support the show and support the channel, what we do here. And uh, probably a week left, maybe a week and a half left, we're going to do the first Patreon prize pack giveaway featuring the new What's the Scuttlebutt coffee mug that's still not here yet. I'm still waiting. And our fine friends over at Warbird Coffee is going to hook you guys up with some free coffee. It's a coffee starter pack. It includes the P51D Mustang that has a horsepower level of two. So this is your basic get you through the afternoon right out the end of the day. But if you're uh, cramming for some exams, got to get up early, get hit the road, you probably want some P47 with a horsepower maxed out at a level six. So one lucky Patreon member who signs up for our Patreon will win this coffee pack along with a coffee mug. But don't fear, the prizes are going to continue and uh, come down the line too. We're going to be some autographed M1 Garen clips for your collection. All you have to do is head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com. Sign up for Patreon. It doesn't matter which plan you choose. If you sign up for the dollar month plan, hey, that's good enough for us. You're automatically entered. If you want to do the 350 month plan or the $7 month plan, once again, it doesn't matter. Sign up and you'll be entered. And we want to thank each and every one of those of you who have already signed up. And uh, thanks for all the support. Real quick on a mail call. It's a follow-up message from our friend Sebastian over in Sweden. Um, he said he would like to hear us talk about the atomic bombings in the podcast and also our thoughts on it. And then if Henry can tell us if he recalls any of his father's thoughts on the bombing that in the war, um, clearly we won't get into that tonight. We'll definitely add it to the agenda. That way we can all have well-planned, thought-out thoughts on the topic. And I think it would be an interesting episode because I don't know if we've ever really brought up the atomic bombings. And uh, one last plug for those of you watching on YouTube. Behind me you see the, uh, the famous meme coffee guy with his drinking cup and the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. That'll be a new shirt available here soon, too. And if you want to message us, you have questions, comments, and suggestions for the show, you, too, can do so at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Now that we got all that out of the way, Jared, friend, how you been? I'm excellent. Uh, 
teaching, living the good life of a professor, working on my dissertation as well, uh, staying busy, but uh, staying mentally healthy while I'm doing it. Now, I saw about six days ago you were at an event on the uh, Penn College campus, is that correct? Or somewhere within the vicinity? Yes, uh, at Penn State, up at Beaver Stadium. What, what sort of display did you, what kind of event was it, and what sort of display did you guys have set up over there? Uh, within our university football stadium, we also have a sports museum, and it's dedicated to every collegiate sport that Penn State has ever hosted. And currently, they have a really great exhibit that runs through the summer of 2025 that looks at the roles of Penn State athletes who served in World War II. Nice. And there's some really incredible artifacts uh, on display that I'm amazed that have survived uh, and that they were able to get to include in uh, this exhibit. Uh, and so uh, we were up there and we were promoting the show uh, all before our uh, football team's uh, glorified practice, uh, which is called <laughs> Blue and White Weekend. Nice. And it looks like you had a, 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 a fan come by and he looked at the crew, looked at you, looked at the crew and said, you're the best dressed here, fella. Yes. Uh, Coach Franklin uh, stopped by and uh, he... There were a whole bunch of reenactors there, and I was in my navy blues, and he said, you're the best-dressed one here. And I said, well, if that's the case, you have to stop for a photo with me then, which he did. <laughs> First and foremost, I thought you said it was going to run to the end of 2023. The fact that they're stretching this thing out to 2025 tells me that they've invested a little time and probably organizing this thing, right? Uh, very much so. And uh, considering that it coincides with the 80th anniversary of the war, it's entirely appropriate. That's awesome, and the fact that it's right there on campus for everyone to enjoy. And uh, props to you for, uh, you know, it's not often you see someone pulling out the, the Navy gear for a uh, on-land impression living history display. So shout out and props to you on that. But without any further ado, we're all excited. We want to know about your trip, how it came to be, and uh, how long you were there, and all the places you saw. Fantastic um, aerial photos, by the way. Those are some beautiful shots really lucked out with some of those. The trip itself spans back several years. This was a trip that was several years in the making. Uh, a good friend of mine who was uh, a history aficionado up in my area, a gentleman by the name of Dave Scott, introduced me to the Iwo Jima uh, Association, uh, which is uh, one of the, the key veterans organizations in facilitating reunions uh, for Iwo Jima veterans. And uh, they are connected with military historical tours. And uh, they are one of the, the chief facilitators of what used to be and hopefully will continue to be an annual pilgrimage uh, to go to Iwo Jima. And so I bought my ticket in 2019. Wow. I was slated to go there in what March happened? of 2020. What happened between then and now that would put such a long pause on that world travel? I only uh -huh. And um, it was it was a very uh, frustrating experience in having it delayed three years in a row. Um, even more frustrating due to the fact that had had it just taken place two or three weeks earlier, I could have gone for the the seventy fifth. And then you could have been but, just 
isolated on the island the whole time and not be able to leave and just really dig in and enjoy your experience. It would have been very authentic, yes. Uh, but uh, good things come to those who wait. And uh, finally, uh, several of the international travel restrictions were lifted. And in March of 2023, I attended the 78th reunion of honor rather than the 75th. And despite the wait, it did not disappoint. No, I mean, because that time period pretty much stopped for everybody. Anyhow, we all we're all still two years behind trying to play catch up. So I'm sure it, it didn't really affect the the uh, momentum very much. Um, I know Jeff's planning a trip to Europe. Henry's been down to Peleliu before. Is it um, when it maybe for the listeners who don't do you know historical traveling or um, battlefield tours? What's the uh, you know the whole process like? And once you got there, what's the uh, process like as far as going to the certain areas and just basically the logistics of moving you guys along and getting you to see what you need to see? Mm-hmm. It was a multifaceted trip. And how much you saw it within the complete package was dependent upon how much time and money you had, I sure. suppose. Uh, but uh, my travels themselves were a about a week. Um, it took me a full day to get out to Guam, which is where our base of operations was, uh, one of the nearest points of civilization to Iwo Jima. And uh, then it was a, a full day of traveling back four days on Guam and then one very special day on Iwo Jima itself. Uh, for those who had additional time, there were additional tour packages uh, that included, I believe, uh, Tarawa, Tinian, uh, Pearl Harbor, either uh, a book ending it on, on the way coming or going. I can't quite recall. Uh, and so there were a, a variety of options available to people on the tour but given how long that it's been since any americans have been on iwo jima and it, given the the exclusive and rather sacred standing uh, sure. that it has um everybody readily recognized that that was going to be the the crown jewel of the the many treasures and places that we were going to be seeing and experiencing but you know, looking at the posts and seeing all the uh, traveling you did, it looks like, you know, as you say, you spent a couple of days on Guam and it looks like they had some nice um, historical speakers. And actually, you had the um, the privilege, I mean, especially at this time, a privilege to stand there with an actual Marine veteran. Is that Mr. Louis Baragard? Yes. Yeah. Who's uh, from North Carolina. And, uh, and I, I also found out that he's a volunteer docent on the USS North Carolina, wow. which my, my grandfather uh, served on at the end of World War II. And so we had the opportunity to talk about that as well. And uh, hearing about him, just seeing him reminisce about the landing ground that he himself landed on in 1944, uh, he, he was never stationed on the battleship North Carolina, but he said... I may be the last person who saw its guns being fired. Yeah. Because uh, he saw it uh, shooting at, at Iwo Jima as the battle was ensuing. Uh, and so it was uh, all these uh, subtleties and personal little stories that really brought it to life. And uh, that's the one major regret that I couldn't go for the 75th anniversary because 
chances are it would have been a, a much larger number of World War II mm -hmm. veterans who would have been able to attend three years ago versus now in 2023. Um, so that's that's the one major downside to it. Was there a particular thing about Guam that stood out to you uh, as far as impressions go or, you know, all overall parents or experiences there before you it's went over a, to UO? It, it's a fascinating place that has a mixed culture of the United States, Japan, and Spain. And it's, uh, it, it's somewhat reminiscent of Hawaii in regard to how it looks. It's this very much tropical paradise uh, looking place. Uh, but it's, it's very much this cultural melting pot uh, where the American flags are flying from public buildings, but it doesn't quite feel like the United States in a traditional sense. Uh, and so it, it was a wonderful place to experience all sorts of different realms of culture, cuisine, uh, uh, there were a lot of a lot of Japanese tourists go there, and so had some fun interactions with uh, Japanese folks and families who were likewise playing tourists. Um, I would definitely, if you're into <clears throat> World War II or travel, I would definitely put it on your list. It's not not a, a place that immediately comes to mind sure. when we think of the Second World War, uh, but it's it's a really nice place where you can go see World War II sites. Uh, but also live in a degree of comfort <laughs> as well, rather than uh, bushwhacking and putting up a tent somewhere. Jeff or Henry, you got any questions about Guam before we move on to Iwo? We flew through Guam, Jared, when I went to Peleliu in 99 and then hit it again coming out. Um, no, really, really cool place. I mean, I would have loved to have spent more time becoming acquainted with uh, the flora and the fauna and the entire, you know, the, the World War II sites, but we just didn't have time. Yeah, and, oh, Jeff, did you have something to add? Oh, no, no, go ahead. I, I Yeah, I've got a comment after you oh, talk sure. about that for sure, yeah. There's so many World War II sites on Guam. Um, it's also the site of our nation's westernmost national park, uh, war in mm. the Pacific's. Uh, national park, uh, and uh, and so that that for me as a as a former park ranger, that was a very interesting experience because it felt like I was visiting a national park in a foreign country uh, almost. And there's uh, just a lot of fascinating sites uh, along the two major landing beaches. You can go up in the trails and find. Uh, Japanese concrete bunkers and various emplacements. They have a really nice museum there. Uh, of course, the naval base there is huge uh, to this very day, and it's all built on the infrastructure of what was put there during World War II. Uh, that was one of the, the largest supply depots on the planet, uh, you know, comparable to a massive Amazon warehouse, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that was... That was the, for the last year of the war, that was the major jumping off point <clears throat> as far as logistics go. Uh, and so it was incredible to see all this history, but also to see the very active legacy of it still being used today. And what one of our tour guides called, I, I thought, which was very clever, uh, he called it the Island Curtain yeah. amidst our, our current days of international tension in the Pacific. 
You know, and it's interesting, and we'll get the Jeff's comment after I say this real quick because it's on top of my head, but it's interesting how much impact logistically, even to nowadays, that the war had in certain areas throughout the world that one could, even though we're, a lot of these places are modernized today, one can make the argument if the military didn't need those places for uh, military outposts, um, campgrounds, what what have you, that it would have probably they would probably still not be as where they as as advanced as where they are today logistically with some of the airports and um, you know housing and plumbing and electrical layout and just the overall you know city infrastructure some from some of these places. I mean, we hear it all the time, and I think a lot of people overlook that with, throughout you know especially with modern day history. Absolutely, whether we're talking about Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines, Okinawa. All of these places have had a military footprint since World War II, if not before. And for most of them, they've only grown in the 80 years since. Go ahead, Jeff. You said you had a comment. Yeah, that kind of you, you partially answered my question for sure. So um, that's um, well, first of all, we have a lot more in common than I initially realized. Uh, I'm kind of one one step uh, behind you there. You being a professor, I'm a high school teacher and you doing your getting your dissertation and uh, I'm uh, working on my bachelor's, um, but grew up not that, not far from uh, Penn state. And, and of course Gettysburg was kind of a, a pretty hot spot, especially I think middle school age for us to go over there on school trips, things like that. Um, in fact, I had a, I think a fairly famous uh, Nittany line quarterbacks mom, who was my teacher. I don't know if you know, this is kind of going back, but Tony Saka, Ended up being well, drafted in the NFL. Vaguely familiar, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when it was the uh, Phoenix Cardinals <laughs> uh, from the Nittany Lions. So, yeah, that was interesting. And I was also a former park ranger for nine years, but state park, uh, maybe not national. But my um, my grandfather, and I talk about him quite a bit on here, he was a Marine from 46 to 48. Um, so I remember, again, as a youngster, I kind of interviewed him for some school project, and he was um, – I guess the uh, occupational force mm-hmm. on Guam just after the war there. And, and so, you know, no, of course no action or anything. Um, but I remember him talking about just kind of the, uh, the remnants of world war two, you know, when he was there, it wasn't that far after. So there were still, they were still uncovering rotting corpses and, you know, you could see he, he talked about the, you know, the bullet holes in the concrete and the walls and the buildings. And um, you, you brought up a good point. Guam is again, one of those, it, it, it doesn't fit with the Pearl Harbor, Tarawa, Iwo Jima, you know, the, those hot spots that people, even a, a novice Pacific war historian, you know, Guam is, Oh yeah. Guam, Tinian, Saipan. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. It had such a huge footprint. And and that was my question is, what does that look like today? Have the I'm assuming there's still a fairly large Chamoran native population there. And I know uh, from meeting a few of them, um, that's still kind of a big deal. The way the Chamorans were just absolutely brutalized Mm -hmm. uh, by the Japanese. And, And I hear a lot about Yo, when you go to Europe, you're going to see that the people there, it's like it was yesterday they were liberated. And I was just curious from your perspective, are the Chamorans and, and, and native people from Guam um, 
does that still ring true with them as well of, as what it was like for them and to have the Americans come and retake Guam in 1944? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I will admit, I was sadly very ignorant on the role of the Chamorros during the Second World War, and I got quite an education while I was there because not only are they appreciative uh, and they very openly express that, uh, but they also have a national holiday that is really the equivalent of our Independence Day, almost, uh, where they celebrate the return of U.S. forces, and they commemorate that every summer. Uh, the the one major highway that goes through Guam is called Marine Corps Highway. Uh, and so it, the the footprint of it is is everywhere. Uh, in written language, in infrastructure, on scars that you can still find on uh, buildings and in cemeteries, in the cliff sides. Uh, it's a lot like other Pacific battlefields in that regard, but there's a major civilian population uh, living around it uh, at the same time. Uh, and so it, it was... Uh, quite the cultural experience for me and being able to go and converse with many residents of Guam uh, who have lived with this their entire lives. They've lived in the shadow of this their entire lives. Uh, And it was a relatively new experience for me. And I'm really glad that I could experience it. Did you meet any older folks there who who were around in World War II, or have they all passed on now? I'm, I probably walked by some of them. Um, I did not have the chance to converse with any of them, though. Yeah, that would be an interesting conversation um, to get what it was like to be a, um, a civilian and having that war come to your, to your area and affect your life and that sort of aspect. You know, we hear it a lot on the European theater and, but to, to get it from the recollection would have been a very interesting conversation. The Japanese enslaved several thousands of the Chamorros, uh, and many hundred of them, many hundreds of them perished yeah. in building fortifications. And some of these bunkers that are still standing there, they're, they're carved out of coral really unforgiving material to try to dig into and construct around. Uh, and so the the Japanese were as brutal in their occupation of this island as they were many others, unfortunately. And so you spent a few days on Guam, and then, as you said, the crown jewel to the tour, the whole reason you were there. How was that experience? It was otherworldly. There's really no other way that I can describe it. It was, it was surreal. It was uh, exhilarating. It was enlightening. It was also exhausting. <laughs> because I, I re- and, and I'll, I say this of any battlefield, you really can't understand it unless you go and trek it yourself, whether it's Gettysburg or Utah Beach, but. Iwo Jima especially, because it is a horrible, godforsaken little island. Uh, the It's very arid. Uh, even today, as the landscape has healed, there's still relatively little vegetation 
you know, there's hardly any tall trees that offer you any shade, just a bunch of underbrush that you have to bushwhack your way through. And I could not, as I was trudging around it in 90 degree heat with 80% humidity, I could not fathom running across that landscape with people shooting at you and not passing out from exhaustion carrying a 60 pound mortar or a 50 pound base plate or you know right. 40 pound water you know actually the water cooled is a lot heavier than that but yeah it's just i gained such a degree of empathy and i i teach i teach a whole class on world war ii in the pacific at, at the college level and i i like to think i i know more than the average person does about world war ii in the pacific but to have that sort of experience and Henry, I'm sure you can attest the same for Peleliu, uh, how unforgiving much of its uh, elements are. It, it takes it to a whole other level in understanding the level of suffering and sacrifice on a personal level. So it was that hot? You think it was 90 with high, really high humidity? With, yes. Yeah, wow. With the, with the real temperature and the humidity, uh, mm. not a cloud in the sky. On, on the flip side of that, uh, it, it lent itself to be a picture-perfect day, aesthetically, mm -hmm. if not temperature-wise, uh, which allowed us to get a lot of great photos, some of which you've all seen. Two questions. One, I'm sure that made you really um, put some thought into when you're reading stories about these you know, combat um, interactions through the Pacific about the thirst, and the lack of water. I mean, here you are on that hot day. I'm sure you have plenty of water, all the water you could handle and you're thinking these guys had to survive with half a canteen of water for two days yeah i could relate to that part a little bit closer than what i cared to uh, <laughs> because unfortunately there weren't any water stations <laughs> anywhere uh what you had on you had to last you and so i had a few bottles of water but you can only carry so many at, at one time and i was pouring pedialyte into them as well and I, I was very mindful to ration myself. Uh, but yeah, it, it, even the same, you you work up quite a thirst. It may behoove it, anybody who's thinking about taking a South Pacific tour to bring some of those like propel um, packs with you that you put in your water just to add the electrolytes, mm -hmm. help keep you hydrated. Now, yeah, I, I took a whole box to the Pacific with me. <laughs> now, a lot of the battle, battlefield tours, especially over in Europe, you fly into the country, you meet up at a hotel somewhere, and then you hop on a bus and you drive to the battlefield. Obviously, down there, it's a little different. Did you, did you guys fly in or did you take a boat over? We flew in. That's what I uh, thought. How were... was that, flying in, actually getting the overhead view before you actually set foot on the place and actually seeing Mount Saribachi and seeing everything from the sky? And did they do a few loops before you landed or was it just a... It was a it was a phenomenal experience. Uh, there were three charter flights through United, and we all had to get up about three thirty, four thirty in the morning. And we had we had to head to the Guam airport, and it was about a two hour flight from Guam to Iwo Jima, which really underscores the just distance. how isolated it is. Uh, yeah, just uh, com comparable. That's like the equivalent of 
flying from where I am in central Pennsylvania to Chicago. So it's a pretty good hop across the water. Yeah. But uh, luckily, uh, our pilots did two or three loops of the island That's on awesome. the way in, uh, which allowed a lot of us to get some really great once-in-a-lifetime aerial photographs. And we were so fortunate that it wasn't cloudy, that it wasn't overcast. And the the skies were so blue that they literally blended in with the ocean. You couldn't tell where the sea began and the, the sky ended. Wow. Uh, so it was uh, some phenomenal scenery. And uh, furthermore, on our way out as the sun was going down uh there was steam coming out of the island because there's still some volcanic activity uh and so there was this sort of steamy aura uh to it that almost looked somewhat hellish yeah as as we were departing dante's inferno yeah truly no were you able i'm sorry no go ahead henry please Jared, were you able to get a sense of, like, obviously you went down to the landing beaches at some point. Could you get a sense of the underfoot conditions? You know, that <clears throat> that sand and how we've heard how hard it was, the volcanic ash, to how it just sucked you in and how it was, I think it was hard for some of the tanks and Amtraks to maneuver up in, too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, you are absolutely right. A Marine who was there, I think, said it best when he said, Climbing up the beach was like trying to climb through wet coffee grounds. That's that, that's that was so accurate. Uh, because with each step, you sink down a good five or six inches. Uh, with with each one, if not more, in some circumstances, and you most definitely get a good workout with your calf muscles mm-hmm. as, as you're going around. Uh, but yeah, just to add additional uh, misery to what was uh, already ongoing there. But as you walk around, you definitely get a sense of that. And I had about I, I had a bunch of camera equipment with me, and I took about two hours of footage on the island, uh, which we're going to edit together and, and put on my YouTube channel. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so for any of your listeners who may not be aware, uh, you can check me out on YouTube at Real History, R-E-E-L, and we typically look at history versus Hollywood, and we may incorporate a little bit of that into this forthcoming episode. But by and large, it'll be a virtual walking tour, because most World War II buffs will never get there, no, just because it, it's so hard to get onto. Um, and so I'm, I'm really trying to do this as a public service uh, so people can really get a sense of the terrain. I filmed my entire walk from the airstrip, which is what the Marines were fighting for there in the first place, and I filmed it the whole way up Mount Suribachi. Wow! What was I can't it? Can't wait to see that. What was it like making that trek up Suribachi? Just being there. I mean, being who you are, what you teach, what you've read, what we're all how we all feel about, you know, the, the Pacific Theater of Operations. What what the hell was going through your head as you were walking up there? I mean, I can only imagine. This may sound cliche, but it was nothing short of a religious experience. 
because you there's a, a trailhead at the bottom of the mountain and it goes in a rather circuitous path. Um, it, it loops back and forth. It's a 10% grade the whole way up. And it's the same road that the sea beast constructed as the battle was still ongoing. So they could have observation and communication points up on top of Suribachi after they captured it. And so you're not only walking on a historical road that has direct connections to the battle, but at the same time, you you also realize that you're walking on a massive grave that uh, within 50 feet of wherever you are, there's in all likelihood a body resting underneath the surface. And so recognizing that it was a huge tomb added an eerie element to it. And uh, for most of us, uh, yeah, everybody walked at their own pace. I'd say only about a third or a fourth of the total number of people that were on the tour made it to the top of the mountain. Um, just because it's really physically demanding and a lot of people just weren't going to be able to do it. Um, but, and so there were moments where I was walking by myself and you almost had the sense that somebody was watching you, that there were these, these eyes or these spirits from the past who were looking down on you like you were some sort of intruder. And I'm certainly no big believer in the paranormal or anything like that. But there are certain places and certain environments where you definitely get that vibe that the spirit of the past sure. is still there. Uh, and certainly the Japanese very much feel that way too. But as I cleared one of the first loops on the trail, the enormity of it all really struck me because I, for a while, you, you couldn't really see too much because of uh, some of the taller brush that was on either side of the trail. And I looked up and there it was. There was this iconic rock face over 500 feet tall, roughly the, the size of the Washington Monument. That's about how big Mount Suribachi is. And I had to shake myself for a moment because I thought, I'm here. I made it. Uh, and so I I and a number of others, we, we took a number of breaks and stops sure. um, on, on the way up, uh, making use of whatever little shade we could here and there and sharing water in Pedialyte <laughs> wherever possible. Uh, but as you crown the top of the mountain, and, and I got footage of this too, you'll, you'll be able to see it in a few weeks, hopefully, as we uh, edit the film. They had some makeshift steps set up, uh, simple metal steps, almost like going up to a a concert stage, that sort of setup. And there were about eight steps, and I trudged up them. I can hear myself uh, huffing <laughs> um, on the audio of my video. And then all of a sudden comes in to focus this iconic view that we've seen in, in so many photographs. Uh, it was the view that Joe Rosenthal had when he made it to the top of the mountain. 
and you see a Japanese memorial, and then there is the memorial to the 5th Marine Division that stands on the site where the two flags were raised. And it was, it was nothing short of spiritual. And I, all of us who made it to the top, we, we really took a degree of pride in, in the fact that we didn't get a ride up. We didn't take the easy way up. We hiked up the mountain just as they did. We weren't under fire. We weren't carrying mortar tubes on our backs or radio equipment, but we made it nonetheless. And to look down on the beach to see the black volcanic ash, to see the fleecy white waves coming in, uh, con contrasting against that, I, I feel my words can't really give it justice. As you stood up there and you looked out over the ocean and along the beaches and the black sand, as you were just saying, could you kind of almost visualize the naval fleet out there and what that scene would have been like? That was very much on my mind. Uh, my grandfather was at Iwo Jima and he was on one of those ships. And I, uh, I took with me to the top of the mountain the, the dog tags that bear his name. Wow. And so there was a little bit of him that was marching with me as well. Uh, he was on, he was a signalman on the USS Lowndes, which was uh, an assault transport ship. And his ship was carrying oh, about a, a full regiment of Marines from the 4th Marine Division. And uh, this is where we get into a little bit of family lore on my end, because my grandfather ha suffered appendicitis nine days mm. before the invasion took place. And he was in the beach party battalion for his ship. And so he would have been a signalman on the beach, relaying ship to shore communications as the waves were coming in. And because he got appendicitis a week and a half beforehand, he ended up watching the whole battle from the deck of the ship. And two of his really good friends died on Iwo Jima, men who he would have been alongside, and he himself may have been killed had he not had this medical emergency at the last minute. And so... I very much get a sense that he suffered a degree of survivor's guilt the remainder of his life. He, I, he felt a degree of guilt that he wasn't with his buddies when they met their end. But conversely, I'm here because of it. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that's, that's the strange way that, that history works. And it was, it was this sort of thing that was very much in my mind as I was looking out into the water. And I was, I was thinking of my grandfather. I was thinking of his shipmates. I was thinking of his comrades who didn't make it home. Uh, but you, you could easily stand up atop Suribachi 
and envision all the thousands of ships that surrounded the island. Now, between Guam and Iwo, obviously Guam has development civilization, as you were saying, and Iwo's out there isolated. Could you? Was there a clear difference in, I don't know if preservation is the correct term, because you know, it's being weathered away, but as far as relics, uh, debris, since you're on an island that's really not seeing much development going on, could you see a clear, defined difference in the amount of artifacts still laying around opposed to what you saw over in Guam? I saw very little on Guam. Uh, you see uh, there were some artillery pieces with some damage. There are, of course, uh, the concrete and coral bunkers. Uh, very little evidence, though, it, at the ground level, at the surface level, where you could see the debris of battle. Iwo Jima was entirely different. It was everywhere. It's like a time capsule. <clears throat> Truly. We were walking down the dirt road from the airstrip to Suribachi, and we're literally kicking up pieces of shrapnel in the road wow. as we walked. It's just it's just everywhere. There's no other way to, to put it. Uh, both both substantial and small, it's everywhere. Uh, anti-aircraft guns, a nose of a plane, which was oh. right right by the road. Uh, we were strongly discouraged from going into any of the caves for a number of reasons. They've become physically unstable. We learned that it's actually warmer in the caves because it's a sulfuric island. It's still an active volcano for all intents and purposes. And it's actually 20 degrees warmer in the caves than wow. what it is outside. And uh, furthermore, we were warned that uh, not all the caves have been cleared yeah. and that there's still trip wires, <laughs> possibly, in some of them. Just unstable TNT somewhere, I mean. Yeah. Um, and so for that reason, we were kept on a pretty tight leash when we were touring. We were, in essence, confined to the east, the eastern shore running parallel to the landing beaches, going from the airstrip to Suribachi. Everything else was by and large off limits. And frankly, we didn't even have time uh, to look beyond that. Uh, we were there for about seven hours. And you really needed the entirety of that seven hours to walk to the mountain, get up it, spend some time up there, walk back down, check out the beach and then get back to the airstrip <laughs> in time wow. uh, to catch your flight. Uh, so for folks like me who did the full round trip on foot, we got in about 11 miles uh, that afternoon. Uh, but to, to get back more directly to your, your question, uh, the, the place is just littered with it. And as we were, descending Suribachi and these are one of the photos that I shared on my Facebook page a few days ago uh, that was the best view that we could get of these old U.S. naval vessels that had been sunk as breakwaters 
Yeah. And the the island is actually 30 feet higher out of the ocean than it was in 1945 due to ongoing tectonic activity. Mm -hmm. And so I I couldn't get more than a half a mile, I would say, close to them. But you could get a pretty decent view of these ghostly, half-rotted-away, rusted vessels that were on the western shore of the island. Uh, and so, both big and small, the debris of battle was just everywhere. At, at one point, uh, the, the other interesting thing, too, is that caves that were once very visible and open and apparent, a lot of them have since collapsed in on themselves. Uh, and so in one or two instances from what we could see, there were actually gun barrels jutting out of these huge embankments of dirt. And it just, it, at first glance, it just looked like a random metal pipe sticking out of the ground. But then you realize, oh, that's a Japanese artillery piece that is within wow. a collapsed cave. And the barrel is all that you can still see of it. But it was uh, one of our one of our guides that was with us um, pointed out that he was seeing more debris than usual because it had been four years since any tourist, for lack of a better phrase, had been on the island, and so. Every time it rains and that stuff goes into the ditches or the gullies or the roadbeds, um, yeah, the Japanese don't don't care about it. It's you know everywhere they're used to it. Uh, but uh, it was ubiquitous. It was it was everywhere. And uh, unfortunately, though, uh, they were pretty strict on what we could or could not bring off the island. I was going to ask you if they had a strict policy about treasure seeking. Yes. Uh, so we had to, um, there were wand metal detectors uh, that you had to go through before you could uh, get back on your plane. Uh, but you you are allowed to take as much of the black volcanic ash as you wish. And I have my jar of it beautiful right here. And I will be happy to send each of you some Please. as a souvenir if you don't have some already. Jeff has a nice soil collection, but my, my coffers are empty, so I would love... Yeah, feel free to send some my way, too. <laughs> I will be happy to do that. A couple of things. I'm looking at your Facebook page, and the that shot you're talking about when you're coming down Sarabachi of the ships, they're far enough away, but they're old enough and bleached enough that they almost look like concrete bunkers along yeah. the, on the beach. You can barely tell the wood. And second of all... I'm surprised National Geographic has not contacted you to try to. You have two overhead shots of Iwo, and one of them is just beautiful. You got Sarabachi in the foreground with a little tuft of, of cloud, and then you got the entire island going off into the horizon. That is such a beautiful shot. Congratulations on that. I mean, that looks like something you lifted out of a National Geographic's <laughs> book. Like I said, we were very lucky with the conditions that day. Uh, despite the heat. You're lucky you had the and, window seat, too. <laughs> That's a well, beautiful shot. Yeah, fortunately, um, uh, a lot of the people who were sitting in windows were taking images, and they were kind enough to share some of them with me. I had an aisle seat, so I, I didn't get a good view going in or out. I was passing my camera around to people that I was like, here, take them, 
do it. Landscape, landscape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was like, just keep clicking. <laughs> uh, so, yes, uh, we were very fortunate in that regard to get some some good images. Now, you're, you're talking about the distance that the flight took, the amount of time, which struck me because obviously you're in the air and you're flying over there. And back then, the, the men were transported via ship. And when we, we read the books, we see the, we see the little tiny maps in front of the books of the, the whole general area. We hear the, the phrase island hopping. And I don't know, maybe sometime, maybe it's just me, but when you hear island hopping, you see these condensed maps. Okay, just generally you think, and these, these islands are pretty darn close together, but it took you two hours on plane. So it just kind of, it reinforces in my mind being Marines on these naval ships in these combined quarters for weeks, if not months on end, and then being transported into smaller LSTs and being cramped. And, and then all of a sudden you're, you're on this Island. And so you haven't had much movement with the exception of what little PT you got on top of a, of a transport ship when no one else was up there. And so to be confined for that amount of time, just to get from one location to the other and then be released into the wet coffee grounds as the, the Marine told you, and then expect to survive. I don't think we put enough account into going from being stagnant and, and static to survive. I mean, if you're a runner and you go do a 10K or half marathon, most people go and show up two hours early just to get a warm-up mile in. You know, you're not stuck shoulder to shoulder or, you know, in these confined smoke-filled compartments and then saying, okay, here's 90 pounds worth of gear and some guns and good luck. hope your legs don't cramp up. Absolutely. And I, I was able to gain an additional degree of empathy a few years ago when I did living history on the USS North Carolina that my grandfather was on. And I got to hang out at his station and bunk in the area where he would have bunked. And so it was a, it was a wonderful experience that allowed me to connect with my family history. But at the same time, uh, I learned that Navy life is uh, not as easy as what people <laughs> often no. think it is. Uh, because in large battleships like that, when you have three or 4,000 people living on a vessel, sailing through the South Pacific, and the thing is like a humidor, it's like a sauna <clears throat> several decks down, with no AC, sailing through the tropics, it's... It's like a sweat box. There's really no other way to put it. Oh, and by the way, if you've ever read Leckie's book, anytime there was any sort of thought or fear of air attacks from planes or whatever, you got locked into those quarters. It was no right. longer go up and enjoy smoke and breathe the fresh air. It's You guys were being locked in this hot-ass compartment until the threat's gone, whether it's 20 minutes or four hours. Right. And just in Tampa, we have the um, SS American Victory. It's a Liberty ship. And I've had the privilege of doing some living history on that because what they actually do, this is mobile and people buy tickets and they go out and tour around Tampa Bay. And then they have mm -hmm. a small handful of reenactors on there just to give people the ambiance and the idea, but not have so many that they're in the way. But obviously I wouldn't, you know, six, five wasn't that common back then, but yeah, being six foot five and trying to, even the shorter guys, just trying to walk through a bulkhead with an M1 slung over your shoulder with a helmet and a pack on, you're constantly yeah. getting snagged on things. And it's just being in those confined quarters just, you know, for a few hours is one thing. But once again, for days on end to get to where you're going and then climbing down a net and hopping on a landing craft and away you go. 
Absolutely. It just totally shines a light on it. Henry, Jeff, I've been doing a lot of talking. I, I feel like I always take it away from you guys. You guys have any questions, comments, or uh, additions? I've got two things. One's more of a comment. One's a question. Uh, I guess first the comment, Jared, isn't it just, isn't it interesting how history just knows what it's doing? Um, you know, like you said, your grandfather, I can only imagine being in that position that, uh, not being able to go. I couldn't imagine that. Um, you know, that survivor's guilt was, was strong and it never went away but history knew what it was doing because like you said um he could have been uh you know could have been among the heroes and but here you are now um and because of you your grandfather and and all of his uh, battle buddies all the men he served with are are immortal and I just, I think about that a lot. History, the more we try to study it, the more you read about it, the more you try to make sense of it. Uh, sometimes you just kind of got to let it be because it knows what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you're, you're definitely a testament to that. And, um, and I'll try to ask a question that I, I, I think maybe our listeners uh, would like to ask you. And that's, look, we've seen a lot of, seen a lot of movies we've seen a lot of Iwo Jima done uh is there when you know you were there right so is there one that you kind of maybe reference back to like oh man letters from Iwo Jima or oh man you know flags of our fathers or even wow uh stands of Iwo Jima were there any that came to mind that said wow they really really got it right here of uh, the Pacific of course um with with a small part there with Barcelona. So is there anything there that um to kind of give credit where credit's due in the film industry? Sometimes we like to just totally destroy the you know, some of their oh that's not right. Oh they would, you know. Um did you did you think about that at all? Did you, it was there a sense of I feel like I've been here before because I got to see this on the big screen. Was was there any of that? Those sorts of connections I think are inevitable. Because as we try to visualize battle, often the first visual frame of reference that we have is Hollywood depictions. It's it's just a, a natural inclination. It's the first thing that comes to mind. It's what's most digestible and easily presented to us. And along those lines, I really gained an added level of appreciation for Letters from Iwo Jima. Because, of course, it's it's not perfect. No historical film is. And you, know, you can nitpick and say, well, Kurabayashi, he didn't fly into Iwo Jima. He took a ship and so on and so forth. And most of the characters in the movie are composite characters and et cetera, et cetera. But one thing that, that I think needs to be pressed upon listeners when we think about Iwo Jima is that we often envision it as just this one iconic dominant feature in the form of Suribachi, and then there's just this black pancake that's attached to it. And that's not true at all. Um, It is a meandering eight-square-mile patch of ravines, cliffs, uh, valleys, gullies that's 
a machine gunner's delight if you can catch a platoon coming into one of those ravines. And I think Letters from Iwo Jima does a pretty good job of showing the varied aspects of the terrain in regard to not only the cave system, but the cave system didn't emerge out of nothing. It, it's linked inherently to the geography and the geology of the island. And so even though most of that movie was filmed in Iceland and California, you can really tell for the shots that they actually did film there that they were taking good mental notes and visual cues on thinking, how do we recreate this elsewhere? Uh, and so I really gained an appreciation for that film after I had the chance to explore there. Uh, the, the geography of it is much more complex than what we often give it credit for. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I was guilty of that until the first time I had a conversation with uh Woody Williams and um you know you're right it's the 5th Marines it's the, the 28th Marines right <laughs> like it's the 5th Marine Division um but uh, in, in studying uh Iwo Jima's and read and reading about it as much as I've done and being of course a scale model hobbyist I've done a, a small uh, diorama about uh, Iwo Jima, and cool. it centers around the uh, flame tanks of the 4th Marine Division, the Meat Grinder. Mm. And, you know, reading about the Meat Grinder was, that's a whole nother issue in itself. You're, yeah, uh, of course, the 5th Mardiv got everything, you know, they were just got everything pounded out of them because of the those big guns, like you said, in, in, in Surabachi, but the topography and the terrain as you start heading further north towards that quote-unquote amphitheater and mm -hmm. that second airfield. Um, and, and then even going again, like I said, uh, with uh, Woody Williams being with the uh, third Marine division, uh, probably the most overshadowed of, of those three main landing divisions there. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That, that was a great um, analogy of yeah. Surabachi and a, and a flat black, pancake but yeah absolutely i'm i'm glad you mentioned that because that's kind of my I, i've learned that myself you know because we're kind of we have this vision um and what's given to us in in theater and then when you really start doing a deep dive yeah some of that terrain was just just impassable i mean just to think that these guys the amtraks and shermans just could not navigate and it, you know, track vehicles are, they're track vehicles. They can pretty much go anywhere. So if they can't go, you can imagine how difficult it is mm -hmm. for boots on the ground. And you really get a sense of Kurabayashi's skill. Because this was a guy who arrived on Iwo Jima the same week that the invasion of Normandy was beginning. And so he has nearly a year to prepare. And he only got a fraction of the defenses and tunnels done that he wanted to get done, both due to a manpower shortage and some of the strategic infighting that he was having with his commanders, of course. Uh, but it, it makes you quiver how much worse it could have been had they been even more productive than what they were, and they got a lot done in nine months' time. 
Uh, but he he really knew what he was doing and devising the the defenses uh, and overlapping fields of fire and uh, just these killing fields that were mapped out and charted to the utmost lethal efficiency. Yeah, one of the reoccurring themes on this podcast that we that ends up coming up when talking about the Pacific is how we as American nation really benefited from the infighting and lack of open communication between the Japanese Navy and the Army. There was so much of their stuff that didn't get done adequately or on time because of egos not wanting to report accurate numbers when it came to deaths or damage or just even logistics, you know, how Guadalcanal came. Oh, we're going to go build an Air Force uh, air runway over here, but we're not going to tell anybody else about it. It's just we benefited so much from the lack of communication between their, their primary military forces there in that whole campaign. Yes, and at the same time, uh, one could argue the shoe was on the other foot in regard to that dynamic at the outset of the war because uh, certainly the U.S. communication didn't, yeah. uh, <laughs> or lack thereof better. Uh, it didn't serve us too well in the first year of the war in the Pacific either. That's true, too. Back to what you guys are talking about, the geography. And, and if you guys are listening to this podcast or even watching the video, please head over to WTSP World War II. That's WWII.com, and we will link to Jared's Facebook page. It's These photos, and I, I don't want to sit here and you know just just talk about these photos, but I'm looking at another one from the plane and you can see the topography you can see the boulders along the beach you can see like how deep the in some areas the vegetation is just by the deep grooves from the roads what roads there are and paths and so when jeff is talking about how traversing this island and, and fighting on this island how difficult it was from the black sands on the beaches to the the rugged uh, terrain going up Sarabachi to the rugged terrain on the other end of the island, you can really get a good grasp of that by just looking at these aerial photos of the island. I mean, the quality of these photos are so good thanks to modern-day technology that you can get a real good idea of how bad it had to be to fight against just the environment, let alone the Japanese on top of it. You can see how rugged this whole island was just by looking at these aerial photos. And, and that just attested to the body count for the Marines. I mean, <laughs> yes, Kirby plan and, you know, the, 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 the Marine or the, uh, the Japanese that were so well trained at that time, but it's just the ultimate kill zone. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just couldn't imagine, you know, looking at how we conduct combat today with everything is so accurately laid out. And I, I couldn't imagine just seeing a sand table of Iwo Jima, just everything to scale. How in the world, like you said, one Nambu would just dominate so much real estate, just one well-in-placed machine gun. And then everything that they had was always just this mutual supporting fire mm -hmm. uh, these it was just oh my gosh and maybe it's best maybe it's the, maybe it's you know may, maybe the military knows what they're doing every now and then just don't tell most of these guys just just you know, when the ramp drops just run on the beach get everything on there clear the beach and get as inland as quickly as possible because uh, 
for for any of the planners and all those photo reconnaissance that was taken by the Air Corps and all the guys that studied those pictures from above, I mean, they knew they were throwing their guys into an absolute meat grinder. They had to. And uh, bottom line, the testament of the of those Marines that that hit that island and what they accomplished and in 30 some days in that environment mm-hmm. the kill zone after kill zone uh, unbelievable Un- unbelievable thanks for sharing jerry that's just awesome oh well no thank you um yeah one thing that really struck me that I, that i wasn't really able to connect the dots to until i was walking around there were so many accounts from marines of where they had taken out a pillbox or a fixed position and they had thrown grenades in it, they had taken flamethrowers to it, and then there's gunfire that starts coming out of it again. And they're thinking, what the hell's going on here? How how could anybody still be alive inside that? But when you when you're there walking around, you realize how interconnected this labyrinth is, this subterranean tunnel system. And the Marines had killed the gunners in those positions, but men were being shuffled from other positions through the tunnel system to reoccupy the guns therein. Uh, and so it, that was that became all the more apparent to me as I was walking around because you're thinking, oh yeah, like that's connected to that, and this tunnel's running underneath us right now. Uh, and so that was uh, one of many epiphanies that I had. Not to mention around. the eerie feeling of, oh, wow, it was easy for them to wait, wait for us to walk past and then pop up behind us mm-hmm. and ambush us from behind, which was. Mm-hmm. So your overall feeling, experience coming away from this this trip, this travel down to uh, both Guam and Iwo, what was your overall takeaway? It was, in all likelihood, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's not an easy place to get to. It takes a long time to get there. The island, during non-pandemic times, <laughs> is only open up to Americans one day out of the year to wow. coincide with the anniversary. Wow. And that is part of a treaty that the United States has with Japan that was created during the Vietnam War when Japan wanted the island back. Um, And so it's very restrictive as to who can visit it and when. And unfortunately for any of our international listeners tuning in, you need an American passport to get on. If, If you're from Europe or Australia, they won't let you tour the island. So there's no option to stay overnight. No, none. Okay. I had no idea it was that locked down. There's a a Japanese naval airstrip on the island, and they are there for defensive purposes. It's part of this chain of military installations that circle throughout the Pacific. They are there for search and rescue reasons whenever needed. Uh, I think above all else, though, they're there to protect the place, uh, to make sure that people don't come in and grave rob or metal detect or scavenge for valuables. Can I ask a question on that note? Yeah. I know on Peleliu there's been this 
big movement for a number of years. It started around the time I visited in 99 of Japanese repatriating remains mm-hmm. of their war dead. Mm-hmm. Is is that going on on Iwo Jima or are they intact right where they were killed? It's a little bit of both. Uh, over the past 30 years, there has been repatriation and they do a, a, uh, uh, typical uh, burning of right. of the remains and wherever possible they they try to take them back to the Japanese mainland uh but for so many of the Japanese they were <clears throat> killed in these tunnels that were dropped by the force of explosives or have collapsed or eroded with the passing of time and it was in, it was in, and the same is true of Peleliu, but it, it was entirely in the realm of possibility that we could have tripped over a pile of bones as mm. as we were walking around. Uh, but in short, yes, the Japanese have made effort to find bodies and return them back home. But I'm sure there are many thousands of them who are still there, unclaimed. Mm-hmm. Was that military presence felt when you were touring the island? I mean, you know, you kind of, you to kind an of... extent, uh, there was a mixture of U.S. Marines and Japanese naval personnel who were on the island, and they were by and large there to play chaperone. I think um, they didn't have much to offer in regard to water or medical assistance. Uh, for uh, people who perhaps needed it. Uh, but, yeah, I had I had a an Iwo Jima commemorative challenge coin in my pocket. And it had the U.S. flag and the Japanese flag on it. And there was one Japanese airman who was particularly helpful for a lot of American guests... Uh, directing them and assisting them as needed. And I walked over to him and I gave him the challenge coin. Nice. And um, <laughs> I, I bowed and I placed it out my open hands, very respectful gesture. And uh, he was stunned that uh, somebody was giving him a gift for doing his job. But in that moment, I thought, this is so poetic. Uh, because chances are my grandfather and his great-grandfather could have been shooting at each other at this battle or another battle. And here we are now where our countries are not considered ultimate foes, but very substantial allies. Uh, and so uh, I thought if if that one little gesture can build just a little degree of goodwill between former enemies, then it was entirely worth it. You had a picture of that on Facebook, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did, actually. I think I remember seeing that come across. So that that was one of uh, one of many human moments that I was able to experience on the island. I'm just, I'm always jealous when I hear about these battlefield tours, but I'm like, it's talking about the fear of missing out. It's like, I would have given anything to have been there. That just sounds like just a, 
and I hate the phrase bucket list. I really do. But I mean, that's like the entire, that's the entire list there. I mean, just to be there and have those experiences, whether it's with, you know, Lewis over on Guam or having the ability and one day to have the challenge coin in your pocket to be able to give it to somebody, but just to, the whole experience all in all just sounds like such a impactful time. And I would say to anybody, yourself included, who's interested, uh, the the waiting list, the registration list for next year's tour is already open. My somewhat pessimistic uh, speculation is that once all of the World War II veterans are gone, the interest the, may the Japanese government may cease yeah. to have these open house days, if you will, uh, for we Americans. Um, and so, if if anybody is interested, I would urge you to look into traveling there sooner rather than later. Uh, not to mention the fact that uh, scientists uh, have rated Iwo Jima one of the deadliest volcanoes in the world, and there's a one in three chance that there will be a major eruption there within this century, which will destroy the island completely and wow. probably create a tsunami of apocalyptic proportions. <laughs> That will affect a lot of other uh, island nations, um, and so someday uh, the battlefield will not be there anymore. Uh, Mother Nature will reclaim it. And it was like a little extra cherry on your traveling Sunday. You got to pass over Wake Island. That had to be a cool little surprise too. That was uh, a very nice uh, bit of icing on top. And uh, the pilot who was flying us realized that there were World War II veterans on board and that there were World War II aficionados. And he made special uh, point to uh, showcase the fact that we were flying over Wake Island. And I was able to snap a few good photographs mm. of that as well. You know, talking about nature reclaiming. I mean, you look at these aerial photos of these islands and, you know, perhaps nowadays modern combat we take in consideration the environmental impact of war but i mean you're looking at this these flyover photos of wake island and that it's crystal blue right in the middle you know the whole the water inside of the the island air mm -hmm. the ring itself and the waters around iwo jima it's just it, it took a while but you would have never known there were you know vessels being sunk in those areas just full of fuel right. and diesel and oil and bodies and metal it's just the water in these photos it just looks like nothing ever happened it's yeah amazing. that's true of so many battlefields when we go to civil war battlefields within our own country and there's some of the most beautiful national or state parks that you could encounter and to consider the level of destruction and death and wholesale carnage that took place at them and to see them now as these bucolic picturesque places seemingly frozen in time i i very much got that same sense that that bit of irony if you will in exploring some of these pacific battlegrounds before we wrap up this episode we have a little something we like to do called what you're reading but i thought it'd be fun since you're an author well We'll go, Jared, what you working on? <laughs> <laughs> We're interested to know. I mean, we've had you on for your, your last two books, and uh, you got anything that you could even maybe allow to peek or give us a hint about? <clears throat> yes, absolutely. I'm currently working on two things. 
Because uh, one's I not just, enough. He's just a super multitasker and just keeps it going. It'll get the best of me one of these days, I'm sure. Uh, but I just uh, finished my next book that I co-wrote with a 99-year-old veteran of wow. the Army 8th Air Force. Oh, Jeff's out here. So Jeff's like, what? Huh? What? Oh, oh, what? And uh, his name is John Homan. He was a co-pilot on a B-24. He threw, flew 34 combat missions wow. in 1944. He kept a detailed diary and flight log. Uh, he's as sharp as a tack. And I met him about, I, I met him on a number of occasions, but uh, about a year ago. I finally sat down with him for a substantial interview. And at the end of the interview, I said, John, your story is worthy of a book. And he said, well, I'm old, so we better get at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he's, he's doing mighty fine at uh, nearly a century young. And uh, we've signed a contract. The book is complete. And Congratulations. that will be out in May of 2024. And that will be entitled Into the Cold Blue. And it will be an examination of his, not only his combat missions, but his training, his upbringing, and uh, how he's come to terms with World War II history in the 75 years since. So uh, that's, that's one project that is in the works. And I'm also working on my doctoral dissertation <laughs> as well. And uh, that will be covering the World War II history of the Gettysburg battlefield. And uh, that throws people for a loop sometimes when I tell them that. Uh, but many of our national parks were mobilized during World War II. And in the case of Gettysburg, there were psychological operations trainings going on there, really secretive clandestine stuff. There was a German prisoner of war camp that was located there. The federal government wanted to scrap the Civil War monuments and the park rangers were like, no, don't do it. Uh, and so, and all the while, Gettysburg had this incredible, noteworthy standing of national symbolism what does the Gettysburg Address mean as we're fighting for democracy overseas? And then, of course, after the war, the National Cemetery there is expanded in the same burial ground that Lincoln dedicated. And to top it all off, Dwight Eisenhower makes Gettysburg his home when World War II comes to an end. And so my dissertation, which will hopefully someday also be a book, covers all of that. And this sort of cycle and repurposing of history, both from a practical and symbolic point of view. You're just, I'm just, the amount of work that you get yourself involved with. And I mean, that in the, what you just explained and that whole, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. I mean, I never even considered to put that much thought into World War II relations to Getty, Gettysburg and all the associations and well, that and the idea that the army's like, hey, this Civil War nonsense—it's taking up space. We need we it need was, to expand. Let's get rid of it. 
it was federal land and federal land was being put to use yeah. in a time of national emergency. That's and the same was true of Yellowstone and Yosemite and so many other places. We have a airport down here called Page Field. It's a small airport where a lot of private planes <clears throat> and people learning to fly and and all that. During the war, it was actually a Marine Corps um, pilot training area and some infantry training area. And a family member through, of mine through marriage, his family had a cattle ranch out there well past the airport, but where they used to do training. And not so much now, but he I have a few of them. But when he would go out there as a kid, they would take metal detectors. And you'd find 30 and 50 cow rounds that just lost velocity and just fell to the ground they're like perfect shape and and it's interesting to to see that in this little area the impact that we we had over at page field and and all that down here so i can only imagine between the battle at gettysburg plus all the training going on there just the you know the gettysburg address as you said just the amount of history and and the pride that that area takes into maintaining and sharing that history it's it's a beautiful thing it's the one exciting thing about the project uh, because there's been so much written about Gettysburg and so many people wonder what could you possibly write that's new? And <laughs> I, I found there's actually quite a lot uh, that, that we can write and learn about. So I'm, I'm very excited to, to share the story. And I, I think one of the big takeaways is that the military history of Gettysburg does not stop in 1863. 1863 is the beginning, and it it carries on into subsequent generations in varied ways. I'm starting to see a theme with your recent career, and that is putting a fresh aspect on well already well-told stories. You got your Hang Tough book on, on uh, Dick Winters. Everybody thought, well, what could we possibly learn new about him with all the Band of Brothers books and his biography? And you, you found a way to do it along with your, your co-author. Then you had Fierce Valor, once again. Uh, <clears throat> that story about Spears, you know, not as well as read, told as far as other books about Dick Winters. But once again, between the Band of Brothers books and, and the miniseries, you found a way to shine a fresh new light on that story. And now here you are finding a way to shine new light and bring a new angle to Gettysburg. It's... It's starting to be a growing theme with what your books recently. And congratulations well, it's, on it's, that. It's 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 what historians do. We we often think of revisionism as a bad thing. It's often used in a in a derogatory way. Um but all of history is revisionism because uh, new research and information and materials come to light that uh, sheds fresh perspective on stories that we think we know. And so uh, I I love the thrill of the hunt. I love doing research. I love finding new ways to interpret old stories. And I have a lot of projects yet that I would like to do. And we are looking forward to having you on for future episodes to promote those projects in the future. And speaking of projects of the future, Jeff, you got anything coming down the pipe you want to talk about or promote before we wrap up this episode? No, uh, I just wanted to bring to light, uh, you know, when you guys were talking about Wake, um, we typically do what you're reading, but I'll, I'll go with uh, what 
do you recommend? Um, and there was a great book uh, that kind of really puts the battle for Wake. Uh, it sheds a lot of light on it. And, and I think any anybody who wants to know anything about the Pacific to kind of be able to put all the pieces together, I really feel like they should read this book. And Please. it was John, Wuk- John Wukovitz, uh, Pacific Alamo. The Battle for Wake Island, and uh, Jared, I'm assuming you've you've already read this one, and you know this just it's one of those books. Again, it's kind of one of those um, kind of in the background, right? Um, you know, which is really a shame for these guys. Um, but there's some great photographs in that in here. There's uh, you really got to understand um, talking about island topography, but really understanding what Wake looked like. Mm. Uh, what the garrison had at their disposal and how long that garrison lasted. And I think the lasting impression from those survivors of, of wake is talk about missing the ultimate show because, you know, they had no idea really what they were thrust into and then to be prisoners of war. For almost four years mm-hmm. to, to be able to live through it, to be part of it, to be, I mean, a big part of that, the beginning of us being thrust into World War II, but then being closed off from everything for four years. A lot of these guys had to learn what World War II was after they, they were liberated. And that really has kind of stuck with me after reading that book to to, to be a World War II vet. Oh, what was it like in World War II? Well, <laughs> really couldn't tell you because, you know, they spent that whole time kind of behind closed doors. So interesting that you talked about Wake and, and Don for shedding some light on it. I think that was great. And it just reminded me of, of Wukovic's book there, Pacific Alamo, because it's really, again, I think it's an interesting and I think it's an important read for anybody that's reading uh, and interested about the Pacific War in general, for sure. You know, I had this thought on the last episode, and I didn't even bring it up, but maybe the three of us need to work on a refined must-have books for your home library when it comes to the Pacific, and then we maybe can do one on the European theater and expand it as we go. But I'm sure there's you know, a few that we all agree upon, but then, as Jeff just pointed out, this particular book that I'm sure he probably would put on that list that maybe Henry and I haven't even read or were aware of. So maybe that might be something interesting we can post on our website, you know, for those getting into this particular uh, theater of operations, and we'll put together one for Europe and and on down the line. But maybe that's something we could put on our website as a reference guide. Of here's some must-have books if you want to get the full view of this particular operation, <clears throat> and we can continue working on that in the future. Because it'd be interesting to see how many of us have the same book ideas versus, oh, here's one you really got to check out. So maybe that'd be kind of cool, something we can to do for our audience as well, we can work on and bring up occasionally. Here's a book we're going to add to the list and it might be kind of interesting to do. Henry, do you get anything coming down the pike, sir? No, nothing that I'm going to mention right now. As far as what I'm reading, I'm, I'm going to be in this one a while. Volume three of Ian Toll's trilogy, Twilight of the Gods. Just for fun. Show the side of that book. Cause that's a, that's a thick brick. <laughs> yeah. It is a thick book. But I tell you, man, Toll's a great writer. I mean, I'm thoroughly, it, I'm very early in it. I'm I'm like 80 pages in. You know, I just right now time's really crunched for me. I can't 
spend as much time reading um, as I want to, but I'm really enjoying it. I mean, it just he's so articulate, such a good writer. And I enjoyed volumes one and two as well. Jared, do you have anything else? I know you're working on putting that video together, but do you have any other projects or appearances anywhere you want to get the word out about before we wrap up this episode? I'm always somewhere doing something. <laughs> uh, it's a good problem to yeah, have. Uh, we, we're, we're always adding content onto our YouTube channel at Real History. We've been on a, a Civil War theme over these uh, past few weeks, which have led to some very lively discussions. Um, but yeah, we're, we're going to continue to uh, take a look at that. We have some things lined up for the 30th anniversary of the movie Gettysburg, uh, which uh, came out in 1993, believe it or not. That was the movie that got me interested in history. Uh, so I, I always enjoy talking about that. And uh, as to, uh, I'll, be, I'll be speaking at a few places this summer, and uh, folks can see that that list of events at my website, jaredfrederick.com. Fantastic. And I want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. And um, as I said earlier, please make sure you head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, sign up for Patreon so you can get enrolled in the uh, Patreon prize packs for giveaways we're going to start doing. If you haven't done so, please head over to YouTube.com, look up D410 Media, so you can follow us and watch us live every Monday and see some of the other content we have out there on the YouTube channel. And for myself, Henry, Jeff, and Jared, we want to thank you guys for hanging out with us tonight, and we will talk to you all soon. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>